uh, is in a nursing home, so if you can contact him, that would be good. Um, now, before I pray and open up, uh, just a couple of comments about today's sermon. We're looking at verses 13 to 16 in Ephesians 2, so you might want to uh, turn, it's page 1675 in the Pew Bibles, and turn to that. Um, uh, now, there's two things about it. One is, we're getting to those three or four verses which actually are the best summary of the whole letter. So, if you get to concentrate and work out what's being said here, uh, you pretty well get the general thrust of the whole letter. Uh, that's the first thing, and that's the positive news. The negative news is it scares the person explaining it, because if I don't explain this part properly, you're probably going to miss big chunks of everything else we do. So uh, even if you pray for me as we are studying, that'll be good. Uh, we're going to give it a go, and uh, some of it might be a little heavy, but I try to keep things simple, and I hope everyone will get something out of this morning's uh, uh sermon on uh, these three verses. Let me pray and then let us look at it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that uh, it's a word that has no error in it. It's a word that is uh, authoritative and it's not a word that uh, something we come to sit down and discuss and dispute, but rather we sit under it to hear it, to have uh, your word actually judge our own thoughts and our own attitudes and our own mind. And we come and uh, are so aware that we're laid bare before you. Uh, we're in um, no place to hide from you. And Lord, even as we have this word explained to us, we pray that it would penetrate and it would, uh, in fact, do a work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, um, we looked at mainly verses 11, 12 and a little bit of verse 13. And we remembered our past, and Paul uh, contrasted really the Gentile past uh, with their present. Um, Henriksen, the commentator, summarizes all that Paul says in five words. Um, he says, uh, the Gentiles, before they came to Jesus, were Christless, in other words, without a Messiah. They were stateless, uh, in other words, aliens to Israel. Uh, they were friendless. Uh, they did not belong to God's covenant. They were hopeless, which you know, and godless. Um, and we really are no different to those Gentiles in our pre-Christian state. Um, everyone who is not a Christian is separated from God. Um, everyone who is not a Christian is separated from his people. Everyone starts life off far away from God. Um, this idea that we start life off as little innocent babies uh, is a myth. Uh, we start as strangers from God and strangers from his people. And, and we need to put an end to that bad start because if it's just left to roll on, we just get worse and worse and worse. Um, sadly, though, we can't. But verse 13 of our text tells us uh, who can. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, well, we have a new beginning, obviously, those words, but now. Uh, it's a contrast, isn't it? In the past you were far off, but now you've been brought near. It's a brand new beginning. 
And quite frankly, every Christian can wake up in the morning and say, things are different now for me. I used to be hopeless. I used to be godless. I used to live a certain way, but now things are different. And sadly, uh, in churches, not many people can say this. Um, this language is foreign to many. Um, if I speak to people, um, you find it very hard for someone to say, I've had a new beginning. Um, what, what they find is Christianity is better as an add-on. I've got my normal life, I live a certain way, and now I've just added on this extra hour uh, of an activity to all my other activities, and Christianity is just another activity, just like going to a show or a museum or a footy match or something like that. I hope this is not you this morning. Because if Christianity for you is just this one hour extra, um, I, I, I'd encourage you to pay attention and try and get a grip on as much as you can. Because without a new beginning, you are outside God. Uh, you're destined for judgment. And the best thing you can do is even in the middle of the sermon, cry out and cry out to God for mercy and salvation. Uh, so let's look at these three verses then. And the first thing I'd like to pick up is, but now in Christ we have peace. Um, now, now, if you had a lump of evil here, you would find that built into that lump uh, is an impossibility of peace. In other words, wherever there is sin, you just cannot have peace. Um, sin never produces true peace. We can go to someone and flatter them and think we'll win them over as friends. Uh, folks, that will not be a long-term peace. It will not be a real peace. We know this. The essence of sin, quite frankly, is selfishness, isn't it? Uh, selfishness seeks to take what someone else has. Uh, selfishness jumps in first and tries to grab what someone else wants. Um, you sometimes see it even at morning tea. Um, and, and so it does not need a lot of brain power to work out. It doesn't take a lot to work out that every time there's sin, you're going to have division. Um, so sin separates us. As uh, David clearly said, separates us from God and separates us from each other. And this is what we've been studying, isn't it? That's what we studied last week. The Gentile Christians were separated from God before they became Christians. And very obviously that separation from God and separation from Israel were all linked. And there was hostility between the two. Now sin we saw last week started at the fall. It started after Adam sinned. His sons killed one another. Um, and then back in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2, we found out a few weeks, quite a few weeks ago, that it's not just what was bad in their heart. There are cosmic and evil powers at play in this world. Look at verse 2. I'll read it to us. It says, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Uh, a, a sinful nature cooperates, if you like, with the evil powers. Um, it, it, and, and they just work to produce evil. 
and even more selfishness and it produces division. As David found out, even amongst children uh, there, there's a, there can be fights. But, but for us as adults, you think we get better, you think we're better educated, uh, but we will divide on the colour of our skin, we call that apartheid, we divide on nationality, uh, we know of anti-Semitism these days, we divide in re on religion, on gender, on families, on sport, occupations, and on and on and on. We cannot help ourselves. Uh, we must divide because we love sin. Um, so the obvious question is, how can we find peace? Well, well, this chapter is actually the best chapter to look at. Uh, just to give you a tip, have a look at how many times the word peace is seen even in these verses. Uh, in verse 14, for instance, for he himself is our peace. Verse 15, thus making peace. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace. And then if he hasn't used the word peace, look at the principle of peace being brought up over and over again in these same verses. In verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near. Uh, verse 14, who has made both one to create in himself one new man from the two. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Verse 18, through him we both have access by one spirit. Uh, and if you haven't picked up the overriding theme is peace. Um, well, need to keep reading Ephesians. The one who delivers peace quite clearly is Jesus. Uh, read again from verse 13 and pick up exactly what's being said as the summary statement or the title statement. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this verse really highlights two components, doesn't it? Two components that bring peace. First is the blood of Jesus Christ. Here it's referring to a historical event, something back in history. And it's speaking about the cross and Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And then it speaks of union with Christ, but now in Christ Jesus. And but now tells us it's not a historical event, it's a current experience. It's a current, uh, if you like, event that has happened in the life of the Ephesians. Let us first deal with the historic blood spilled. Most, ex most people, if you speak to them and say sin must be paid for, sin must be judged, they'd pretty well say yes. Uh, many would acknowledge that even if you said a death penalty is a fair thing, they'd say fair enough, I think death penalty is fine. And if you don't think so, just go and watch the rugby league. This week, uh, someone racially abused Latrell Mitchell and uh, even the footy fans, they called for the life penalty, really. They said, ban him for life. Uh, he's dead to us. Now, logic demands that you cannot really die and live at the same time. You cannot be banned for life from footy and turn up to the games as well. And so the only way the deadlock can be broken is if someone else dies for you, well then you could maybe go scot-free. Uh, so the need for Jesus to die as a sacrifice for sins, um, it's loved by Christians. Christians embrace the truth. But, but even non-Christians, they sort of feel that 
we sort of do need a sacrifice. Um, they might not actually feel they need a sacrifice, but they can see the logic of it. And, um, and they grasp that to avoid a penalty, if you want to not pay someone's debt off, well, it's the only way is if someone else pays it for you. Um, now, now, that part's pretty easy to pick up, isn't it? Now, the more difficult part is this bit about being in Jesus. That's harder to explain because how do you put one person inside another person? And the only way to explain it, or the multiple ways you can explain it, the first way would be positionally. Imagine you went to school, and at school they said we're going to have sport, and this class is going to be divided into two teams, so we're going to pick two captains, and two captains get to choose who's in the team. And so each captain gets to pick their players, and eventually the teams are equally divided. You fall into one team or into the other team. And so it is with the human race. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in his historic death, in his blood spilled on the cross, uh, and, and you see his work as for your sin, well then you're in team Jesus. You are in Jesus. You are not condemned, but rather you're declared guilty because Jesus has paid your price and his righteousness stands to your account. But if you think you'll get past God's wrath and you think God's judgment won't fall on you because you're sort of not so bad. And even if you're not so bad and you've done a few wrong things, you're going to pick up your act a little bit more for the rest of your life and you're going to come good by the time you get to heaven. Uh, and God really is not that hard and so he'll let go. Uh, folks, you're in Team Adam. And you can fool yourself as much as you want. Uh, but the reality is you'll be judged guilty and you'll be punished and you will spend your eternity in hell. Now being, Je being in Jesus is not just a positional thing. It's not just being allocated to a team. It's not just a legal thing. Being G in Jesus is also an organic thing. It's a living thing. Uh, it results in an internal change. Uh, we can put it this way, Jesus is now in you spiritually. Uh, he gives you new life. At the same time as you put your faith in him, or the reason you put your faith in him, is because he has come to you and turned you from your sin and put faith in you that you might trust him. And instantly you have this new heart which hungers for him and hungers for his word. Now this is not something that happened 2,000 years ago. This happens now in your current experience. Uh, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now this verse is not speaking about nearness in terms of geography. It's not speaking about nearness in terms of ceremonial nearness and that you've come to the front of an altar of some kind. No, no, it's speaking of a spiritual nearness, a spiritual union. And Jesus, if uh, you were to read his uh, uh, teachings, you would see he likens this union to something like a branch being connected to a vine. He uses other pictures as well, but the branch connected to a vine. It's living, isn't it? It's organic. Uh, the union with Jesus uh, is really a life flow 
that comes from uh, the vine into the branches and it actually changes your intellect, it changes your emotions and your will and you experience a radical change. And this radical change moves you from being self-absorbed to being God-absorbed. We turn from disobedience to God to radical, self-sacrificing obedience. And I trust I'm describing you. Because if I'm describing you, you've really got past verse 13 and you're doing really well. And you can now say for yourself the words of verse 14. And you can say what Paul writes in verse 14 and say, For he himself is our peace. You see, Paul doesn't say Jesus gives us peace. Uh, no, he says he is our peace. And then he emphasizes it, doesn't he? He says he himself is our peace. He's both the peacemaker and he is the peace. Through the cross, he's actually the bridge between two cliffs. And I didn't give David the picture, but I'm thank, thank you very much for having the picture. Uh, he's the bridge between man and God. He brings us near to God and he even produces peace between men and women who would never really be even willing to hang around one another. But now in Christ, for the first point, we have peace. The second point, but now in Christ we are a new mankind. And now if you're going to bring all your brains to gather together to think through what's being said, this is the time, folks. Uh, you see, Paul knew that the Jews hated the Gentiles. And he knew that the Gentiles hated the Jews. Uh, Jewish hostility was so ingrained in them uh, that uh, the Jewish writers once recorded a rabbi telling a Jewish father that if his son goes and marries a Gentile woman, well, it's right and good for him to conduct a funeral for his son. Uh, the Jews, as we saw in Deuteronomy 4, in Matthew's reading, had so many privileges from God. Uh, they had God himself. They had the worship of God. They had the law of God. Uh, and this should have produced godliness. It should have produced humility. That God had given them everything, really. Instead it produced arrogance. And they looked down on Gentiles. The Gentiles were no better. Uh, Greeks, for instance, considered all the other nationalities barbarians. Um, but they were just as arrogant as the Jews. And I suspect if you go to every people group of this world, you will find some form of animosity. You will find some form of bigotry. You would find some sort of feeling of some group feeling they're more superior than others. It's in this context that Paul comes to the Ephesians. And he says to actually have true unity amongst Jews who hate Gentiles and Gentiles who hate Jews uh, is through Jesus and his blood. Um, let me read from verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Uh, notice that uh, Christ, who is our peace, he actually makes things happen. He, he brings two people groups together. 
Gentiles and Jews. And shockingly now, they are united. Uh, he has made, he himself has made both one. Uh, this is not some sort of coerced union. This is not an artificial union. Um, you know, we looked at uh, economic Marxism, where you try and force everyone to have exactly the same pay and then you'll be all happy. Uh, it's nothing like that. It's not cultural Marxism either, something like the voice that will make sure that we all have a voice in parliament and then we'll all be happy. Um, neither is it external uniformity like the religion of Islam. It's not organizational unity like all the Christian denominations try. It's not religion, it's spiritual union with Christ. It works from within but it brings down walls that uh, just exist between one another. Now some commentators say, what is this middle wall of separation that uh, union with Christ brings down? And they say, well, do go to the temple and you'll see if that in the first century the temple existed, there was a wall. And this wall uh, kept Gentiles and Jews separate. Well, it's speaking about that, that this wall that had warning signs on it telling the Gentiles, stay away, stay far from God. Uh, this wall, it brings this wall down. I think that's in unlikely, because when Ephesians is being written by Paul, the wall is still standing. So it's unlikely that he'd be writing about something that's destroyed when it is still standing. Others say it's the curtain in the middle of the temple. And they say that it's that curtain that has been torn at Jesus' crucifixion. And the torn curtain certainly speaks of access to God and being opened up from not just in the temple but all over. But this is also unlikely because even though the temple was torn, the actual practice of Jews and Gentiles continued to be quite hostile. Paul, for instance, is accused in Acts 21 uh, of bringing a Greek into the temple. And the plan is bring an accusation against him and we can have him executed. So this torn curtain doesn't really reduce or remove the hostility. I think the middle wall refers to the Old Testament laws and regulation. And you pick that up in verses 14 and verse 15. He himself has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And this middle wall of separation that's been removed between Jews and Gentiles is really the abolishing of the law of commandments. And you might be sitting there and saying, now, what laws were abolished? Well, at this point in time, the commentators are on steroids. They're super keen to fill up books to just tell you exactly which laws are abolished. Uh, they have so many definitions of what these laws and commandments are that we just don't have time to cover them all. So I'm just going to give you my understanding of it and you can ask as many questions in morning tea. Um, I think the law of commandments that have been abolished uh, is the ceremonial law. I, I think it's all those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament uh, that included things like circumcision, 
dietary laws, washings, sacrifices, feasts, and other temple practices. That they were all external laws. They were all things that you did physically. They were things you did really to access God. They were things that you did in the worship of God. Uh, they, they were to teach you what you need to do to be ceremonially clean before God. And it was so difficult really to go through all those laws to just come into God's presence. It was so hard to follow every single law to be ceremonially clean. And they taught us that all these external laws really were like a picture to show us it's hard to get into God's presence. He's that holy. But then these external laws were so visible, they actually separated Jew from Gentile. The Jews had them, Deuteronomy 4. They actually practiced them. Uh, but the Gentiles had no knowledge of them. And even if they came to the temple to see them, so often they were so far away, they never even got to see them. Um, now some say, well, it's not just the ceremonial laws. Uh, what, what Jesus has done is gotten rid of the whole Old Testament law, every single law, including the Ten Commandments. Uh, well, I think that contradicts what Jesus teaches. Because on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, uh, but to fulfill. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, I actually think he's speaking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, the law written on the tablet of stone by the finger of God. Uh, some call it the moral law because it reflects God's character. Uh, they're impossible really to keep. None of us can keep them. And they don't point to how a sinner has access to God. I think they actually do the opposite. They tell us we're not good enough. They tell us we don't keep the law. They tell us we're offside with God. Um, and so what they do is not give us access to God. They deprive us of access from God. Um, so it makes sense that God, Jesus was sent by God, the Father, to actually fulfill the Ten Commandments, that he might have a righteousness to put to our account, uh, and then to abolish the ceremonial law. Because if our sins are dealt with, and if our righteousness is Jesus's righteousness well we don't need the law to have access to God anymore in fact we have open and perfect and free access to God through Jesus Christ and his blood and so the ceremonial law has been destroyed abolished annulled and verse 15 affirms that having destroyed this law this middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, this big difference between two people groups. Jesus now creates in himself one new man from the two just making peace. And this one new man is also an interesting term. It's not like I bought myself a new phone. A phone that's just like all the other phones in the shop. A phone that's just like everything else that's manufactured by the same manufacturer. No, it's a phone or something of a totally different kind. It's nothing like all the others. And in fact, we would put it another way. He creates this new man, he creates this new mankind, this new humanity. 
Um, and, and so the Gentiles are no longer in their separate corner. The Jews are no longer in their separate corner, but now we have a new group, a new humanity, a new mankind, the church. The Jews don't need to become Gentiles to be acceptable to God. Uh, the Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Instead, Christ creates a new people, the church, who can come to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul even rebukes Peter, doesn't he? Because Peter sort of allows the difference between Gentile and Jew to remain in the Galatian church. And Paul has to rebuke Peter and say, no, this is not on. He knew that the church was a new humanity, a new group altogether. And so when we think to ourselves, you know, how do we divide? The Jews used to separate Jews and Gentiles and the uh, Greeks used to separate barbarians and Greeks. Uh, well, now it's really the church, isn't it? And everybody else. Those in Christ and those not in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, for instance, Paul's speaking about Christian liberties. And when speaking about Christian liberties, he says, you should be willing to forego your liberties because your liberties should not be something that you use. Your freedoms in Christ should not be used to offend people. So you are free to have a drink, but don't drink if it's going to offend someone. Certainly don't drink to sin. And then he says this as a summary word. He says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks. And then comes this third group, or to the church of God. Uh, just as I also please all men in all things. You see, but now in Christ... He has created a new man, a new mankind. And lastly, in Christ, we are reconciled to God. Um, William Carey was born in 1761. In 1793, he sailed to India. In 1800, his first convert uh, put his hand up and said, I'd like to be baptized, and he was baptized. And then 20 years later, 1,400 Indians were baptized. And the church was 1,400 members, at least. Um, now, there was much separation in India because they've got a caste system. And every Indian who was being converted came from one of the castes. And in fact, all the castes were represented in this one church. And, and you've got to picture the Lord's Supper here. Can you picture it? These converts come in from the highest caste and the lowest caste, and they're all coming, and they've got to come to the one table and eat from the same bread. Um, Kerry understood that union with Christ creates one new man. That from the two, they become one. Or in the caste system, from the five, they become one new man. And interestingly, uh, one of the highest caste members comes to Kerry and says, I've got a really good idea for you. This 1,400 people, you know, taking the bread around, it's sort of taking us a bit of time. Can we come up with a better way? Here's a better way. Why don't us Brahmins go and sit in a separate room and we'll just share it ourselves? And why don't the rest of them meet out there somewhere and they can eat amongst themselves? Kerry uh, says no. He vigorously opposes the idea. He insists that all converts, all people who have come to the Lord, and to, uh, 
incorporated in his church have one Lord's Supper. You see, this is why we don't divide church by nationalities. Um, this is why we don't even divide church by age groups. It, it betrays this oneness that the gospel produces. If Jesus has united Jews and Greeks who hate each other, then surely when the gospel goes out, it should unite a people like us. You look around and you can't work out how many nationalities there are. And so we don't divide by age, we don't divide by occupation, we don't divide by anything that we think will work well. What works well is what God has instituted. And that is that the gospel miraculously and beautifully creates one new man. Um, now look at the next verse. And let me mess with your head a little bit now. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And some people struggle with the order of verses 15 and verses 16. I don't know whether you noticed. Verse 15, he brings Jews and Gentiles together. And then verse 16, he brings God and man together. And so some people ask, is Paul contradicting himself here? Uh, in other places he speaks of God and man being reconciled together first, and this produces men and men being reconciled. And here he's got himself a little bit confused because what he seems to be saying is, join the f church first, and if you join the church first, then the church will take you to God. Uh, I, I, I think you know I'm not going to agree with that sentiment at all but I think to understand verse 16 you've got to understand the context and the context is very much that Paul has reminded the Gentiles that they were greatly divided with the Jews uh, they were without God they were outside Israel they had no access to any of the benefits of the law or any of the benefits of worship of God but now in Christ, they were brought near and they did have access to God. And now there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between slave or master. And Paul starts off by highlighting the divisions between two groups of men. And so as he deals with it, he deals with the division between men and men first. And he confirms that this animosity, this hostility between Jew and Gentile is resolved through the blood of Jesus Christ. This grand saving work of God, it unites people who totally hate each other out of sheer prejudice. And he does it through his son. And by uniting people to his son, he has already reconciled them to God. He's already made peace. Uh, with them and, and this fruit of the peace is clearly peace with men isn't it uh, and so these all nationalities as they are brought to God at the same time they're brought together to one another and, and so the order shouldn't really throw us off that much what should really make us sit up and listen or pay attention is that the order firstly is in the same order as he's brought up the problems he's dealt with the problems in the same order as he's raised them 
But then he brings something else up, doesn't he? And this is what should cause us to stop and think. Because not only has he said Jews hated Gentiles, he's now saying there's animosity between God and man. There's a, an inability to breach and bring God to be friends with man and man to be friends with God. And the simple reason is man rejected God and God's angry. Man was disobedient to God and now God's justice must be satisfied. Uh, the animosity between God and man, quite frankly, is mutual. Uh, and if we don't resolve it, it's not going to hurt God at all. It's going to be all our problem. And clearly verse 16 says this animosity is resolved. And let me read that for us again. That he, and the he is Jesus, might reconcile them both, and the both are Jew and Greek, to God in one body, the one body is the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Yeah, simply put, Jesus by his death puts to death the fighting. Armstrong puts it this way, the slain one becomes the slayer of the animosity. The cross satisfies the justice of God. The cross turns away the anger of God. The cross unites Gentile and Jew to God and brings them into the church. This peace with God and men is amazing, folks. It's a stark image in a condemned world. It's a glaring, if you like, anomaly in a divided world. It confounds the world. The world is constantly trying with crazy ideas on how to unite us and keep us at peace. Uh, they're trying even on the weekend. How can we get Penrith supporters to be friends with Aboriginals? And folks, they have no idea that Christ alone will bring them together. Christ alone will pr produce in them one new man, one new humanity. And when they're brought to Christ, they will see everyone as the same as them, all sinners, reconciled to God through Christ. Shouldn't this be a picture of our church? Uh, should we not look at our church and say, well, what's dividing us? Is it externals? Is it something that... This person owns and the other person doesn't own. Is it something that this person wears and another person doesn't wear? This person eats and another person doesn't eat. This person's culture. And whenever we're being divided because of these externals, if it's springing up in our heart, shouldn't we watch out? Shouldn't we put it to death? Shouldn't we look out for one another? If someone in our church is constantly being neglected, constantly being marginalised, Shouldn't we be people who say, this should not be so in the church? If we tend to only catch up with the same people over and over and over again, is there not a problem? John MacArthur. He speaks of an Ngoni tribe in Africa. They're always at war with the Senga and the Tumbuka tribes. The chief of the Ngoni tribe sits back and remembers how the good days um, used to be when his warriors would go out and attack the Senga and the Tumbuka tribes. 
They would kill and maim the men. They would rape and kill the women and the children. And then they would come back having burnt the villages and robbed some of their goods. They would come back with spears still dripping with blood. And they would sit around and brag about their conquests. Uh, but then missionaries came. And when the missionaries came, the gospel was preached. And when the gospel was preached, people were brought to God. And years later, a new missionary comes into the middle of Africa. And it's his job to actually serve the Lord's Supper. And as he looks around, he sees the chief of the Ngoni tribe, some of his members. They're all mixed up with people from the Senga tribe and the Tumbuka tribe. They're not sitting on one side and the other. They're all together. Uh, and they're all singing. They're praying. And they're participating in the Lord's Supper together. MacArthur says this of this account. He says, once they were divided by spilling each other's blood, but now they are brought near to God and to each other through the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, but now in Christ we are reconciled to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come and thank you again uh, for the wonderful reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray you will, in fact, move in us hearts of praise and thankfulness to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us sing uh, the last song, Come People of the Risen King. <laughs>